Welcome to Discus, Discussions in Spinal Cord Injury Science, where we bring you interviews with researchers and clinical leaders in spinal cord injury rehabilitation. I'm Rachel Tappan. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Malap Sandhu about his recent paper published in the journal Neurorehabilitation and Neural Repair titled Prednisolone Pretreatment Enhances Intermittent Hypoxia-Induced Plasticity in Persons with Chronic Incomplete Spinal Cord Injury. Dr. Malap Sandhu is a research scientist at the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab and an assistant professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Northwestern University. The primary focus of his research is to understand how hypoxia and drug-induced neurochemical plasticity regulates neural systems involved in motor behavior and to exploit these mechanisms to develop neurorehabilitation interventions for recovery after neurological disorders such as spinal cord injury. So welcome, Dr. Sandhu. Thank you, Rachel. I appreciate the invitation and the opportunity to talk about intermittent hypoxia and spinal cord injury. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have you here. So in episodes two and three of this podcast, we started a conversation about neuromodulation in general, as well as some electrical stimulation modes of neuromodulation in particular. And now today, we'll talk about hypoxia and medication as tools of neuromodulation to influence and augment recovery after spinal cord injury. All right, so Malap, let's start with acute intermittent hypoxia. Uh, what is it, and what do we know about its effect in people with spinal cord injury? Sure. So um, when we think about hypoxia, we don't think of it as beneficial because hypoxia has a, a negative connotation. Uh, it's associated with uh, sleep apnea. It's also associated with uh, high altitude sickness. So I want to talk a little bit about the historical perspective and why acute intermittent hypoxia is different from chronic intermittent hypoxia. In other words, how is good hypoxia different from bad hypoxia? So intermittent hypoxia essentially means brief exposures to low oxygen. So a person inhales anywhere from uh, 60 to 90 seconds of mild hypoxia, and this is given intermittently. Uh, for about 10 to 15 times in, in humans. What it does is it stimulates the serotonin system. The repeated stimulation of the serotonergic system activates the brain-derived neurotrophic factor as well as other plasticity-related proteins, which in towards the cumulative downstream effect is that there is an increase in plasticity or there is an increase in the excitability um, of the motor neurons. So with a lot of neuromodulation techniques that are out there, one unique uh, aspect of intermittent hypoxia is that the area of research started in animals. So we have about 20 to 25 years of research in the animal models that we can uh, look up to for the underlying mechanisms as well as you know, what are the protocols that work in animals and how we can translate this work into humans. So to give you a historical perspective, the very first research in intermittent hypoxia was actually done in 1980. Uh, this was done in animal models where they were stimulating the carotid sinus nerve. Now that is the nerve which goes from the hypoxia sensing cells in the body and transfers it to the brain. So if you stimulate it, you would essentially mimic hypoxia. And they found that by intermittently stimulating this nerve, they were able to uh, enhance the output of the respiratory system over the next 20 
plus years, and in fact 30 years now. The majority of the work was done by Gordon, Dr. Gordon Mitchell, who was uh, earlier at University of Wisconsin and um, is now at University of Florida, who showed the key underlying mechanisms. Uh, I'll take this opportunity to briefly talk about it, um, if that's okay. Sure, yeah. So there are as I mentioned, the 5-HT or the serotonin receptors are activated by giving intermittent hypoxia. Now, we could stimulate these serotonin receptors by giving drugs also. The key difference between hypoxia and a drug-induced activation of the serotonin receptors is that we are able to, by hypoxia, control uh, a very brief and repeated stimulation or activation of these receptors and the and the end result through a detailed pathway which is very well charted out is that there is as i mentioned an activation of bdnf but the end result is that synaptic strength is enhanced so for the same amount of input which is coming from the uh, supraspinal motor neurons you're able to now activate more neurons at the spinal level got it and so it's sounding like then with the acute episodes of hypoxia, then you're essentially upregulating the neural excitability. Is that, do I have that correct? Yes. The goal with a lot of neuromodulation techniques is uh, increased excitability in the motor neurons. And in this particular case, we know from the animal studies that there is uh, increased excitability as well as there's increased synaptic strength between the supraspinal and the spinal motor neurons. Now, I mentioned the difference how this is acute intermahypoxia is different from the chronic intermahypoxia. And I think it's very important to highlight that. So when we say acute intermahypoxia, that means hypoxia, which is, first of all, mild. By mild, I would say about 9 to 10% of hypoxia. So the normal room air um, hypoxia levels are about 21%. And 10% is about, uh, the example I always give is this is like going up on Mount Kilimanjaro. And people go up on Mount Kilimanjaro without any supplemental oxygen. So how do you define intermittent, acute intermittent hypoxia? The first part is that the, it ha the hypoxia should be mild. Secondly, it should be acute as in you are giving it for a small duration of time. In our case, in humans, we're giving it only 15 times of one-minute episodes each, so about 15 minutes total, um, and only a few cycles a day. So in this case, we're going to give 15 cycles, and the duration of exposure with each hypoxia is very brief, which is, in, as I mentioned, we're giving about 60 uh, seconds of hypoxia. All of these characteristics of hypoxia lead to therapeutic effects. Now let's look at the, the bad hypoxia uh, or the very high dose of hypoxia. This is what you would typically see in people that have sleep apnea or people that go up on a high altitude. In this case, the duration is very long. For example, uh, in a person that has sleep apnea, they will be getting uh, hypoxic episodes every night, several times a night, sometimes over 100 times each night. And this continues for days and weeks and months and even years over time. Uh, the hypoxia, if it's an obstructive sleep apnea, hypoxia is pretty severe. Basically, your uh, fraction of inspired oxygen drops down um, all the way to zero if there's an obstruction, and this is a severe hypoxia. All of these things would then lead to maladaptation, which is what we do not want. It results in hypertension, there's memory and learning deficits and metabolic syndrome, and, and a bunch of other things which happen over time in people that have sleep apnea. So when we talk about hypoxia, it's very important to highlight this is acute and intermittent hypoxia, 
and not chronic intermittent hypoxia or chronic continuous hypoxia. And you know the dose of the hypoxia matters a lot. And depending on the dose, you would either see a, an adaptation or a maladaptation um, as your end result. Got it. Well, yeah, and thank you that you've already answered my, what one of my questions was about that of like, could there be some benefit then to having sleep apnea? But it sounds in, in terms of neurologic recovery, but I'm, I'm hearing you say that really the negative aspects of that, of course, would outweigh the, the positives. Right. Yeah. And, and I'm just going to mention for our listeners, too, you and I talked about this um, a few minutes ago, Malap. But so Malap is, we're doing an interview. He's in a therapy gym um, at the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. So if you hear some um, happenings in the background, that's uh, clinical care going on. So um, a lovely example of research and, and the clinic come together. So. Well, th- this is where I would do a, a, a shameless plug, if I'm allowed to, in, um, about Shirley Ryan. I think uh, we have a unique model here, uh, as you know, Rachel, um, where the researchers and uh, clinicians, um, we sit together in a, in a big open gym. And uh, there's a, um, a, a bi-directional conversation happening between researchers and, and therapists and uh, physicians where um, we just provide input and thoughts to each other. So... Um, this is an example of that. Love it. Um, well, so we'll come back now, I guess, to um, to your study. And so before we start talking about your study specifically, though, can you talk a bit about then, you know, we've been talking about acute intermittent hypoxia in general. Um, how does this apply then to people with spinal cord injury? Right. That's a, that's a great question. So it's interesting how the transition happened. So uh, we knew from many years of research that this therapy increases the plasticity uh, or the motor output in the animal models. Uh, but majority of the work was done in the respiratory model. And the reason it was done is because it's easier to quantify um, or measure the respiratory output in animals when they're anesthetized. So you can basically record from the phrenic nerve, which is the nerve that goes to the diaphragm, and you can apply brief bouts of hypoxia, and you could see a change in that output. So that is what my work was um, as a PhD student, um, and that is um, majority of the work was done in the respiratory model. There was no work or very little work done in the somatic uh, function. Um, the effect, so in other words, the effect of hypoxia in the, on the somatic function was not very well known. Uh, so this work was started by Dr. Zev Reimer, who's here at Shelley Ryan. Uh, the work was uh, initiated in what was at that time called RIC. It was a postdoc in the lab at that time, Randy Trambaro, who's now an investigator at Spalding. So they did the initial work in humans with chronic incomplete spinal cord injury. And they did the simple experiment uh, where they looked at the ankle plantar flexion strength and then they applied uh, the intermittent hypoxia protocol um, and then measured the strength again. So they gave 60 seconds of hypoxia interspersed with 60 seconds of normal room air breathing and it was done um, alternately uh, for a period of 30 minutes and they found in their study that by giving a single session of hypoxia and by single session I mean 15 episodes of hypoxia uh, interspersed with the 15 episodes of normal room air breathing uh, they found significantly increased ankle strength. Uh, so in other words, the, the ability of individuals to generate strength went up 
uh, incrementally after just one episode of hypoxia. Now, they did measure till about 60 minutes or so after hypoxia, and in most individuals, the effects were sustained at 60 minutes. Uh, now, we do not expect these effects to be extremely long. Um, over time, they would come back down to the baseline levels. So that was the first study that was done. After that, this was followed up by a, a clinical trial in which uh, hypoxia was combined with overground locomotor training. And this is where hypoxia was used as a primer. So they gave individuals either a hypoxia or a sham hypoxia, and people did an overground walking training for about 30 minutes for seven days. And the end result was that individuals that received uh, hypoxia plus locomotor training had the biggest effect in the endurance as well as walking speed compared to individuals that received only hypoxia or only training. So in other words, the combination of two is more beneficial than the either therapy given alone. And after that, there's been more work that has been done. There's a longer protocols that have been done. Um, there's also work in humans with respiration. There's respiratory improvement that has been shown. There's also work done where in humans we have seen that there is increased corticospinal excitability after giving intermittent hypoxia. We still have a lot to decipher here, but the initial efforts of translating this from animals to humans seems to be successful. That's great. And that seems like that brings us up to speed, really with some background about acute intermittent hypoxia, specifically in people with spinal cord injury. So maybe let's now talk about the study that's our target today. So you then investigated the effect of adding a dose of prednisolone prior to the acute intermittent hypoxia, sort of a, a second primer added to the first primer. Um, what led you to add an anti-inflammatory like prednisolone into the equation? Right. That's a, that's a good question. So what we found is that not everybody responds to intermittent hypoxia. In the work that was done by Randy and that work that, ha that has been done by other researchers uh, has shown that about one-third of the individuals, uh, anywhere from 20 to 30, 35% of the individuals do not respond to uh, intermittent hypoxia. Now, this is not something unique to hypoxia. For most therapies, uh, there are responders and non-responders, but that got us curious on why are these people not responding and if we could understand some of the underlying factors that were limiting their ability to respond to hypoxia and if we could eliminate those factors. So there are several factors that could influence, such as genetics, gender, their age, and then inflammation. Inflammation we particularly were interested in because there was a study published in the animal models by senior, uh, the first uh, authorist, Adrian Huxtable, who showed that when you take animals and you give them an injection of lipopolysaccharide, which is basically a toxin that increases the inflammation dramatically in the system, if you provide an injection and then you give intermittent hypoxia to those animals, you do not see any response of hypoxia. In other words, high inflammation completely obliterates any um, hypoxia-induced plasticity. Then she went in and gave a high uh, dose of um, ketoprofen, which is like ibuprofen, and she found that in the same animals, she was able to recover the effect of hypoxia. So by knocking out inflammation, she was able to show that now they were able to respond to intermittent hypoxia. So there is a linkage between hypoxia induced plasticity mechanisms and inflammation mechanisms. 
We were particularly interested in that because individuals with spinal cord injury, it's been shown that they have a chronic subgrade inflammation, which is independent of any active infections that they have. So just the spinal cord injury by itself changes the immune system in such a way that uh, they have a, a, a low-grade inflammation. So our first efforts to do this work was with uh, ibuprofen. So we gave ibuprofen to individuals an hour or so before giving hypoxia, and then we gave them a hypoxia. And we either gave ibuprofen or uh, placebo, and we found that there were no differences between the two groups when they received ibuprofen or, or placebo. There was no no change. So there were two reasons why this could have happened, and I'm just building up to the reason why we did the prednisolone study. Uh, one is that ibuprofen works in a, in a different manner than uh, steroid. Uh, the mechanisms between the two uh, are, are a bit different. So it would reduce the cytokines, uh, but it would not uh, affect the NF-kappa-B pathway. Ibuprofen is a COX-2 inhibitor and is not a strong inhibitor of the NF-kappa-B pathway, which is the other pathway of inflammation. The second reason is that it turns out that with, for reducing inflammation by giving ibuprofen, you need a longer duration of ibuprofen intake. In other words, an individual has to take ibuprofen for at least one day every eight hours for them to be able to reduce the inflammation. So maybe we were not successful in reducing inflammation, and that's why we did not see an effect. Or maybe it was the pathway that we were targeting was not the appropriate pathway, and that's why we did not see an effect. So then we decided to go to a, a corticosteroid, and prednisolone is one of the most commonly available corticosteroid. It's also an extremely strong inhibitor of inflammation, and we went with the highest dose that was possible. And uh, basically, in other words, I'm trying to say we threw the kitchen sink at it. So we gave a <laughs> 60 milligrams dose of prednisolone, and that is sufficient to reduce inflammation within a short duration of time. So we gave prednisolone an hour before giving hypoxia, and the control was we individuals received either they received a, a placebo, and the same individuals came in at least a week apart, and they were randomized to receive either the prednisolone or the placebo. So that's how the reasoning behind why we decided to add the anti-inflammatory like prednisolone into the equation. Got it. So when you added the prednisolone. What was the result? Um, by reducing the inflammation in these individuals, uh, we were able to uh, see an increased effect. And by effect, um, I mean ankle torque. That was our uh, primary outcome measure. Even with or without prednisolone, most individuals had an effect. They all had a significant effect. By significant effect, I mean that their ability to generate strength went up from the baseline. But when we added the prednisolone into the equation, um, we saw that the effect was even higher than what we would have seen you know, without any anti-inflammatory drug. We also tried to look at what is the underlying mechanism. So to do that, uh, we measured the inflammatory serum markers and there were about nine or 10 different uh, inflammatory serum markers that we saw and uh, that we looked at. And there was one that stood out and that is uh, IL-10. And IL-10 is an anti-inflammatory cytokine. So in other words, if the IL-10, by IL-10 I mean interleukin-10. So if the interleukin-10 levels go up into, in, the, in the serum or in the blood, what that means is that the inflammation has actually gone down and, and uh, vice versa. So we took blood samples before 
giving prednisolone and we'd give and uh, we took blood samples at the end of the experiment and then we compared before and after what the differences were in the levels of the serum uh, inflammatory biomarkers and we found that the interleukin 10 was significantly enhanced after giving prednisolone in other words we could confirm that um, the prednisolone delivery and the time and the duration that we gave it um, we were uh, able to see um, a reduction in inflammation in these individuals um, and that correlated with these individuals ability to respond uh, to hypoxia okay so if I can summarize just to make sure that I'm getting it and that this might help listeners as well so it sounds like for people with with spinal cord injury there's an inflammatory process happening and so you are hypothesizing that potentially if you could address the inflammation piece that might help people benefit more or have more plasticity from the acute intermittent hypoxia. So adding what you found then was adding prednisolone to, you know, prior to the acute intermittent hypoxia helped you get more plasticity than with the acute intermittent hypoxia alone. And then you were able to confirm that this was at least correlated with the impact on inflammation with prednisolone because you also measured these biomarkers of inflammation at the same time. Do I have that right? That's a really good summary. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And, and actually, I have a question going back to, you know, you mentioned that acute intermittent hypoxia in people with spinal cord injury, that there were some non-responders, which of course you have with any intervention. Um, and that part of the piece with the inflammation was to see if you could explain some of that piece. Did, did adding the prednisolone... Um, change anything about who was a responder or a non-responder to right. So, so in in our study, we saw a combination of both. Um, by both, I mean in that individuals that were already responders, their uh, ability to or, or the magnitude of the effect after hypoxia went up. So that was one in in a few individuals, and in, in and the other part was there were a couple individuals that did not respond to hypoxia, and by giving prednisolone, we were able to see them uh, show a response to hypoxia. By response, I mean that their um, ankle strength changed um, after hypoxia. So we we saw both um, that increase in magnitude as well as going from non-responders to responders. I'm going to ask you to look into the future a little bit or speculate, I guess a lot. Um, how do you see this playing out clinically? Um, so what, what do you imagine this would look like in the, in the future? And I won't, we won't hold you to it, I promise. Um, but what, what do you anticipate this would look like um, clinically if things continued along this line? Yeah, that's the, the key question, right? So that's our goal. So we, te- we see in my hypoxia research, the way we see it is that uh, there are several there are several uh, key steps that we need to take before uh, we could translate that into clinics. So first of all, we need to demonstrate the efficacy and the repeatability of the effects of hypoxia. So for that, we need clinical trials. Uh, we have right now um, two clinical trials that are ongoing. And um, the way I envision in my hypoxia is that um, it is beneficial by itself but I think the um, it'll, it's most beneficial when it is used as a primer. So if you if you combine that with some kind of training and if it is given repeatedly, so the cumulative effect of hypoxia is significantly more than a single effect of hypoxia. Not only that, it is also more long-lasting. 
So the way we see it in clinics is the, it has to be, uh, what I envision is that it, the, the intermittent hypoxia would be given before giving um, conventional therapy or high-intensity therapy, and it should be given for multiple days. Um, both clinical trials that we have ongoing right now, um, they are um, at least a month long, um, intervention where individuals get uh, therapy uh, multiple times a week um, and we combine that with um, some kind of training uh, in one study we are combining it with uh, this robotic glove called repel glove uh, and it's the study is more focused on uh, hand and, and finger function and dexterity and, uh, and and grip strength and things like that where individuals get hypoxia and then they get training for about an hour with the glove and there's another one the other trial it's focused more on the the uh, proximal function, and uh, in that one we are using uh, Armeo Spring, uh, which is a, a, again a, a robotic device. It's a virtual reality-based robotic device, which um, where individuals play a lot of basically games, and and it improves the uh, improves the function. So we're combining that with uh, again the protocol is very similar. We're giving hypoxia before they get the intervention. So that's the first part of it. We would need to demonstrate the clinical efficacy of it. Uh, the second part is we would need to make the administration of intermittent hypoxia easy and feasible for clinicians. We see therapists or you know occupational or physical therapists being able to administer hypoxia. So for us to be able to get to that point where they are comfortable and confident in, in giving intermittent hypoxia, we have to develop the hypoxia delivery mechanism and make it super easy to use. We are not there yet. So we would need both the feasibility of the, of the delivery of hypoxia and the demonstration of the efficacy of uh, intermittent hypoxia before we can take it to the clinics. So still some work to do, to be sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, with that, um, Dr. Sandhu, thank you uh, for this conversation. This has been really interesting and, and I think an important area of research for us as physical therapists to be um, aware of and up on. So, um, so thank you for the conversation and for the important work that you're doing. Thank you so much, Rachel. And again, I appreciate the opportunity. It was, it was fun talking to you. Yeah, same here. And Discus listeners, there's so much work going on around neuromodulation. On this podcast, we've discussed various types of electrical stimulation in the past. And today we talked about both acute intermittent hypoxia and drug-induced neuromodulation. We've clearly got exciting times ahead in spinal cord injury rehabilitation. This podcast is a production of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, a component of the American Physical Therapy Association. Original theme music and editing are by Ethan Stoller. I hope that you enjoyed this discussion today and that you'll join us next time on Discus.